Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to Starship Sofa, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. This is the Starship Sova. Everybody, welcome. Hello and welcome to show 264. I am your host, Tony C. Smith. everyone i hope everyone is a big 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 fine and dandy yes what a show we have lined up today it's quite a nice one every show is a nice one but we've got a couple of stories in there and a little fact article by morgan as well but i'll get into exactly what's coming in today's show then i have some exciting news there we go that was attempt at a bloody whistle well i suck in there and i'll blow it <laughs> so Coming up, we have a little short story by Brenda Cooper called In Their Garden. Then we have a fact article by Morgan Saletta on his everything. Next up is the main fiction and its futures in the memories market by Nina Kariki Hoffman. Then right at the end, we have Amy H. Sturgis giving a little promo for her new science fiction lectures that she's doing. So do stay tuned. So, good news. We've got some good, good news coming up. First off, we had the Joe Haldeman video, the Joe Haldeman lecture on the other day. And it just, man, he talked about, you know, how he kind of came about, how he he got to write, you know, the, the Forever War. And it just, yes, you couldn't hear a pin drop anyways, you know what I mean? But it was just, I was just, oh, it was like science fiction heaven for me, listening to how this guy talked about that. You know what I mean? So a big thank you to everyone who turned up and, you know, came along to that lecture. Just, you know what I mean? That's one of the highlights for me, Joe Haldeman. You know what I mean? Bloody hell, man. That's, you know, and speaking of Bradbury, them things are right up there. So again, thank you for everyone. And I know Morgan actually came along there and Morgan asked you a question as well. So, and there's one of our listeners, Gary, who was, you know, in the forces or still is in the forces there. He asked the question as well. So, guys, honestly, girls, thank you so much for turning up. So, which leads us, leads us nicely into Black Hole Friday. Well, it's not Friday anyway. It's coming on Monday, next Monday, which is the 19th of November, for a week from the 19th of November until the 25th. All Starship Sova's like video lectures, everything we've ever done. Which is, that actually, it's all building up there now. There's, there's quite a n- number of them. We've got the Joe Haldeman lecture. We've got the, the time travel lecture. We've got the, the film and TV workshop. The Hunger Games, which Amy did that lecture. The Sherlock Holmes one. Then we have the two narrators workshops, one and two. And the two writers workshops. All they are going in this, what, what I'm calling black hole week. Which is like a, a, from, the, from the Monday to the Sunday Everything there is half price. So normally if you come to the shop, they're £30. Each one of them, like video lectures, is £30 after the event to download them and watch them. So 
slashing, <laughs> slashing the prices for a week. So everything, even including that Joe Haldeman one, is £15. So I'm chuffed a bit with that. I'm quite... A, and actually, it's quarters on the hop because I knew this, you know, I knew about this kind of Black Friday and I missed it last time. I think I did it a little bit later. And then I've just noticed on Amazon, it's coming up for them. So I thought, that's, that's when I'll get it done. So I'm, again, flying emails to Josh and Josh is probably thinking, oh man, not again, here we go. So... That's what's coming up, and like I say, when I do next week's show, we'll be in full, full throttle of this black hole week. So if, there's a, if you ever wanted one of these, you know, the kind of narrator's workshops or the writer's workshops, or one to listen to Amy's lectures, you know, on Sherlock Holmes or the Hunger Games, or that fascinating one that we just had with Joe Haldeman, every one of them there will be £15. And right at the bottom as well, we have, I'm even slashing the price, Starship Sofa's Originals. The original shows, normally that's 14 99 for all them. You can get that now for 7 50 What actually is not going to be in is any of the books. And it's purely, I kind of went over there and tried to do it because I would like to do it like half price as well. But it only lets you on certain ones do it to the, the value of 25%. And when you do this, Lulu still wants all their kind of money. So when you do it, it works out. I think one of the, the books where I kind of did for 25%, I think it works out. I would get 33 or 30 or 50 pence. You know, it's something as silly as, as that. It's certainly less than a pound. And I was like, this, it's like pointless because it doesn't really give that much of a saving. It just means I'm kind of slashing myself. You know what I mean? So I'm not actually going to bother with the books. You know what I mean? That's just... One of them things, but the things I can really give a discount on on are the, the products I've got there. So, starting on Monday the nineteenth, there'll be a like you say when you come on the websites. I'll get Josh to put it on all the websites. There'll be a big link there, and it'll take you to a page where you can just go and and buy them. How fantastic is that? And just to give you a little heads up as well, there is a new Blood and Chrome podcast coming out on or coming out tomorrow Thursday. Yes, Blood and Chrome, the web series is now out and there's two, it comes out every Friday and there's two shows already on the web. They're only like little 12 minute sections, so it caught everyone by, you know, on the hop, but, you know, myself and Dylan Williams have recorded a Blood and Chrome podcast talking all things Battlestar Galactica. Tune in tomorrow. So, I think we'll get into today's show. First up is In Their Garden by Brenda Cooper. Brenda Cooper has published in, or has published fiction in, Analog, Oceans of the Mind, Nature, and in multiple anthologies. She is the author of the Endeavour Award winner for 2008, The Silver Ship and the Sea, and of the sequel, Reading the Wind. By day, she is the city of Kirkland's CIO, and at night, in the early, mor- in the early morning hours, she is a futurist and writer. This story came out in 2009 by Brenda, and it was picked up first in Asimov Science Fiction, and then it came into Year's Best Science Fiction 15, which was edited by David G. Hartwell. And a nice thing as well, nice timing as well. Brenda has a new book out, The Creative Fire, Ruby's Song. This is Creative Fire number one, Ruby's Song, and it's on the Kindle there now. So I'll put a link onto that book if you're interested in any of Brenda's work. Please pop over there and treat yourself to that little ebook. The story is narrated by Lizanne Hurd. In Their Garden by Brenda Cooper, read by Lizanne Hurd. I'm running back through the desiccated woods, going too fast to keep the sticks and branches that have fallen from the trees from cracking under my weight. 
My skin and mouth are dry. The afternoon sun has sucked all the water from me, and I haven't stopped to drink. The sole of my right boot is thin enough a stone bumps the ball of my foot, and I want to swear. But I keep going even though I don't hear anyone behind me. Not anymore. I realize I haven't for a while. I got away again. I saw ten friendly travelers this time before I met one who meant me trouble. I know better than to go out alone, and if I get back in one piece, Kelly is going to kill me. It's not far now. I can see the wall rising up like a cracked egg, dirty white with gray, the top edges jagged. I trip over a log going down sharp on my right knee and catch myself on my hands, scraping the pads. What pads? I can see the black soil line from the fire ten years ago, the one that saved us from burning up when everything else around caught fire. The dry trees around me are saplings that tried to grow back and made it for three or four years before they died of thirst. They're as tall as me. My breath breaks the silence, and I sound like a rabbit before a thin coyote kills it, scared and breathing too hard. I make myself slow down, try to remember what Oscar taught me. Breathe through your nose. Breathe deep in your belly so you can feel it going out and in. Slowly. Slowly. I'm getting there. A hot breeze blows back my hair and helps me feel better. Polly. I hate it when Kelly calls me that. My name's Paulette. I hate it when she moves so quiet and I'm so loud and clumsy. She extends her left hand, but doesn't help me up. There's dirt ground into the creases of her hand and stuck under her nails, and it smells wetter and stronger than the dry, cracked earth under my hands. A year or two ago, I would have apologized first, but I managed not to do that this time. I'm almost as tall as her now, and I can look down on that graying dark hair she's pulled back and tied with a strip of bark, as if we didn't have anything better. She holds her taser in her right hand, a black oblong that she protects as if it means her life. She leaves it out as we walk back, swinging in her hand, the arc of its movement precise. My knee is bleeding, but we both ignore that. Between here and the wall, all the dead woods have been cleared, and we walk on gray and green grass, stuff Kelly had us plant in the moat of cleared ground around our walled garden. The grass thrives out here in spite of the dry, thirsty ground. I don't like to admit it, but she picked well. The spiky low growth has been alive for two years now, and it creeps back into the forest as we clear it further away. She doesn't say anything, but I make up her feelings and words in my head anyway. The walls are safe. You aren't old enough to leave them yet. You might bring people here. You might get hurt or raped or die all by yourself. There's men that would take you in and make you trade your body for water and food. It only takes three days without water. If she was lecturing me instead of staring off, lost in her head, she'd look down at that point and see I have a small canteen clipped to my belt, one of the old ones where the metal's all banged up. Well, you might live a week, she'd look disgusted. We have all the people we can water now. You might get lost and not come back, and then what? We'd lose all the training we spent on you. The only problem with a lecture in your head is you can't fight it. Kelly knows that, and it makes me even madder at her. And it's not like I'm going to be able to explain to the others why I picked a fight with someone who doesn't say anything to me. The other problem is, she's right. 
I shouldn't want to argue with her in the first place, but I hate living like the world isn't all screwed up when it really is, or maybe we're living like it is all screwed up and it's starting not to be some. That's what I'm starting to believe. Whichever it is, I'll never amount to anything if I stay inside my whole life and work on little things that don't matter with little people who will die behind a wall. The wet, verdant world we live in is a bubble, and I want a real world. Right before we get to the wall, she turns and looks at me. I expect her to be yelling angry, and what I see in her dark blue eyes is just sadness. I wonder which one of her plants died this time. I'm sorry she's sad, but I don't tell her that. I can't show weakness. The door in the wall is big enough for an army, and there's a whiter spot in the wall where Kelly's old boss, James, ripped the sign off in the second year of the drought, and also the second year after I was born. The door opens to let us in, and the two of us are much smaller than an army, even though there's a war between us. Inside, it smells like home, and it smells like jail, like dirt and water and frogs and, faintly, of flowers. Later, in the summer, it will smell more like flowers, but the spring is showier than it is smelly. We pass magenta azaleas, whose bloom is just starting to wilt, and in spite of myself, I smile when I see three bees on the one plant. Kelly and Oscar both taught me to see the little things, and I can't help but watch out for the plants. I stop smiling when I notice the board of directors is waiting. All of them... They're sitting in their formal place on benches in a circle under the sign that used to be above the doors. Oregon Botanical Gardens. The board has run us since the first years of climate change, and the half who are still the original members are gray and wrinkled. There's four board members, and Kelly makes five. She says, Polly, please sit, and gestures to the hot seat, the one for people who are in trouble. I've been here before. The board's all as old as Kelly. They all remember the world I see only in movies. And they all remember my dad, who's dead now. And they all remember they're the ones who made all the rules, and I'm the girl who keeps breaking them. I wait for them to ask me questions. They don't. Kelly clears her throat and keeps her chin up, and her voice is as sad as her eyes. <clears throat> Polly, we've done everything we know how to keep you in here. I can't keep putting us at risk by letting you in and out of the door. I've told it not to open for you anymore. So if you sneak out again, you will never be allowed back in. She's the one who had the most hand in raising me, teaching me. I'm her hope for the future. She wouldn't kick me out. Tim and Lee are the two old men of the board. Lee nods, telling me he supports Kelly. Tim is impassive. But he would miss me. We play chess sometimes in the hour between dawn and the breakfast. Sometimes I win. He likes that. He would never kick me out. Kay and Shell are the two women on the board. They're both stone-faced, too. But they might mean it. They're scarier than Tim and Lee. Kelly holds my eyes, and she still looks sad. Usually, when she's getting me in trouble, she just looks frustrated. Do you understand? Yes. Tell me what will happen if you leave again without permission. The door will not let me back in. And we will not let you back in, she adds. Maybe she does mean it. Now her eyes are all wet, even though she really isn't crying yet. Kelly isn't done. I know because no one is moving, and I feel like they're all watching me. Probably because they are. Kelly says, Just so you don't do anything rash, you're confined to the Japanese garden for a week. 
Report to Oscar in ten minutes. She does mean this, except maybe for the ten minutes part. I nod at them all and walk away, keeping my head up. I hate it when they've made me feel small again. In my room, I sweep my journal and two changes of clothes into an old bag, and I brush my hair and my teeth and put those brushes in the bag, too. I sit on the bed and wait, determined not to be early or even on time. But Oscar doesn't notice. I walk in the glass box and close the outer door and wait a moment, then open the inner door. I wonder if these doors are now locked electronically, too, but I don't test them to find out how strict my sentence is. I am inside walls, some glass, and under a plastic sheet roof. The air is heavy with water, although cool. Oscar is nowhere to be seen. When it was finished, the Japanese garden was billed as one of the largest on the West Coast. Then the roof was to keep it from getting too wet instead of too dry. I negotiate the stepping stone path walking through pillows of pearlwort. The cinnamon fern that lines the right wall still has some tender brownish fiddleheads, so I pick them. Maybe it's a form of penance. The very first of the wisteria blossoms are showing purple. Oscar is on the other side of the flowers, between me and the waterfall. He doesn't turn around for the space of two breaths. He's squatting, bent over, clipping the leaves of a Japanese holly. He is a small man, his skin pallid from the damp air he lives in, his long red hair caught back in a braid that falls down a freckled white back. The top of his braid is gray. He is only wearing shorts. He likes to garden as naked as the board will let him. Even his feet are bare. I have always suspected that at night he goes out with his flashlight and gardens more naked than that. Even though he is almost sixty years old, I think I would garden beside him with my nipples exposed to the cool night air. He wouldn't let me, of course. They all treat me like glass. He stands up and turns toward me. Even though the light is starting to gray to dusk, I can see that his eyes look like Kelly's did. Why did you run away? I lean back against the big cedar column that holds up the wisteria arbor, breathing in the sweet air. Why don't you ever leave the garden? I've never asked him this. Instead of looking startled, he smiles. Because I'm saving the world. He is lying. He is, at best, saving a tiny part of the world that I can walk across in five minutes. Everyone here thinks small. I hold up my hand, the one with the fiddleheads in it, and he takes them and says, See? And I don't see at all. He leads me to the kitchen, which is the only room here with walls that aren't made of waxed paper or bamboo. When we get in, he hands me back the fiddleheads, and I wash them in a bowl full of water, and then pour the water into a bin so it can go into the waterfall, where it will be scrubbed clean by the filter plants. We have everything ready, but before we start to cook, Oscar takes me up to the top of the rock wall, that's the center of the stroll garden, and we look out toward the ocean. It's too far away to see or hear, but the sun will set over it. He has made a hole in the roof by overlapping the layers of water-capturing plastic so we can see the sunset directly. There are enough clouds to catch the gold and orange a little, but most of the last rays leak up like spilled paint and fade into the blackening sky. I try to decide whether or not I can use the hole in the roof to climb out of. After the color starts to fade, there is a hole in time between night and day. Oscar speaks quietly. I answered you. Will you answer me? So that's what he's been waiting for. I guess when you are 60, you have a lot of patience. 
We live in a bubble. He laughs and pokes the plastic, which he can just barely reach from up here. It answers him by rippling, as if it were upside-down water. I frown. We do! I wave my hand at all the roads and people we can't see from here. In the real world, out there, people are traveling and learning and meeting each other. They're struggling. They're taking back the world. This time... I haven't really told anyone about the trip yet. I mean, no one has asked. Should I? I walk the interstate and talk to people on it, like always. I have my escape routes. They work. He cocks an eyebrow at me, but doesn't say anything. Eugene's coming back. There's 5,000 people there now. They dug a well deep enough for water, and they think they can irrigate. I met two families who were on their way there. He clears his throat. A year ago, you told me that it had all gone to desert, not even any grass. That's what I heard, but this time I heard different. I paused. I don't know anything. How could I? When he doesn't say anything, I just keep talking. A a band of singing priests went through last night. They saw five jet airplanes in a day over Portland. He can't say anything to that. We saw a plane fly over the gardens a few weeks ago, and everyone came out and watched. We hadn't been able to hear its engines, and Kelly had told me it was shaped different than the old jets. What Oscar does say is, They don't have the right plants. That's what I'm saving for your generation. The bamboo and the bearberry, the astilbe and the peony. He says the names of plants like a prayer, and I imagine him naming the others in his head. The wisteria and the wild fuchsia, the fiddlehead and the mountain fern. I know what you're saving. You keep telling me about it. It's an old story, how we're saving the genome of the naive plants in case the weather ever goes native again. It's good. I'm glad you're saving it. But that's your dream. He pretends not to notice my tone of voice. What your travelers see is the Mediterranean weeds that killed the right plants in California when Father Sarah brought them on his donkey. Now that it's warm enough, dry enough, they come here and invade Oregon like they invaded California a long time ago. His face wears a stubborn look that makes him more handsome, wiping some of the wrinkles away with anger. He starts down the rock face as all of the colors of the garden begin to fade, and I hear him tell me, It is your duty to the planet to help. I sit on the stone until stars swim above the plastic roof, diffused by the beads of water that start gathering there as the evening cools. After my eyes adjust enough to the dark, I come carefully to ground, and Oscar and I share cinnamon fern fiddleheads and cattail roots and some jerky from a thin bobcat that had the good grace to jump into our garden before it died of starvation and fed us. That night, I lie in bed, separated from Oscar by waxy paper and bamboo, and listen to the roof crinkle in the wind. I'm too young to save the lives of doomed plants for people that might be doomed, too. The world has changed, and we'll all die if we try to stand still in its current. We have to adapt to the new climate and the new ways, or die here in Oscar's Japanese stroll garden, walking the stone paths until there's not enough water left for the wisteria. They've taught me the things I need to know to help, and now they want to keep me in a box. But I don't hate them. Oscar's breathing gets even and deep, and it's a comfort, but not enough. I toss and turn. I can't sleep. I pack up everything I brought and wrap it in a blanket so I can swing it over my shoulder. I write Oscar and Kelly a note. 
I tell them I love them and I am going to save the world. And I'm sorry they won't ever let me back in. I find Kelly waiting by the door, a thin stick of a shadow that only moves when I open the door like she's been waiting for that one moment. I'm caught. Oscar comes up behind me. He leans forward and gives me a hug and he whispers in my ear. He says, Good luck. I blink at them both, stupid with surprise. He says, Me and Kelly both knew you'd go. It's time. The board told us to keep you because we need young backs and young eyes. But you don't need us. Go, find out what they fly those planes with and where they go. I felt like thick in the throat and watery. I say, I'll come back some day. He says, if you take long enough, we'll even let you back in. I go before we all cry and wake the board up. The stars look clearer out beyond the wall, and the moat of grass muffles my footsteps. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Brenda. Brenda, thank you so much, and good luck with The Creative Fire. Again, link on to that book. Next up is our very own Morgan Saletta with his stunning fact article, everything. Morgan, sir. Hello and welcome to another episode of Life, the Universe, and Everything, Reflections on Science, Science Fiction, and Philosophy. I'm Morgan Saletta. Today, I'll be talking about megacities and arcologies. The Earth at night against the ocean of space. The continents bejeweled with webs of light, burning white hot urban centers, connected by radiating tentacular lines of light, stretching across the continents, outlined in negative by the world's dark seas. The vast majority of people today call one of these pulsating, glowing centers home, but it was not always so. While the first cities appeared shortly after the agricultural or Neolithic revolution began some 10,000 years ago in the Near East, it was the country, not the city, that was home to most of humanity until the next great change in human economic activities, the Industrial Revolution, began in the 18th century. The Industrial Revolution began a process of urbanization, a dramatic migration of people from agricultural towns and villages, the countryside, to the city. This process has been accelerating, especially during the 20th and now the 21st century, when it has become a vast and unstoppable tide, leading to the rise of the world's megacities. To get some perspective on this vast movement of people from the country to the city, in 1800, only 3% of the world's populations lived in cities, while very nearly half of the world's population live in cities today. In 1950, there were less than 100 cities with populations over 1 million. Today, there are nearly 500. Even more dramatically, there are now nearly 30 metropolitan regions with more than 10 million people. These are the world's megacities, buzzing, teeming hives of human activity, these megacities range from the modern world cities, a term first applied by Scottish town planner Patrick Geeds, to urban centers with global, political, and economic power. London, New York, Paris, Tokyo, Los Angeles, Hong Kong, and Shanghai come to mind. To the ramshackle megacity of slums epitomized by Lagos in Nigeria. And cities somewhere in between, like Istanbul, Sao Paulo, Mexico City. Strangely, in all these cities, whether dominated by glass and steel towers or sprawling slums, 
the pageantry of humanity and the solidarity of community life, almost village-like in many neighborhoods, continues to thrive, unabated by seemingly alienating landscapes or the crushing desperation of poverty. And curiously, despite the often dystopic treatment of megacities in popular imagination generally, and particularly in science fiction, the megacity, if managed properly, may offer the best hope for a sustainable human future, both here on Earth and, hopefully, one day elsewhere in the solar system, Mars, perhaps. Of course, megacities are a common backdrop or setting for science fiction narratives, and so are arcologies, or architectural ecologies, a term coined by the visionary architect Paolo Soleri to refer to very large, high-population-density structures, which Soleri believed would help solve the world's environmental problems, as this quote from Soleri's 1977 book, Earth's Answer, reveals. The problem I am confronting is the present design of cities only a few stories high, stretching outward in unwieldy sprawl for miles. As a result of their sprawl, they literally transform the Earth, turn farms into parking lots, and waste enormous amounts of time and energy transporting people, goods, and services over their expanses. My solution is urban implosion rather than explosion. Today I'm going to talk about both megacities and arcologies because the two types of human habitat, one very real, the other largely hypothetical, are really intimately linked. Both are common in science fiction, and if the world's megacities are going to continue to flourish, they're going to need to become more like arcologies, becoming greener and more sustainable, recycling the waste they generate, and perhaps even producing much of the energy and food their occupants consume. In my mind, megacities and arcologies are an almost perfect example of the way science fictional worlds and the real world can bleed into each other, blurring the lines between reality and literary vision, whether utopian, dystopian, or somewhere in between. So first, let's talk about megacities. At a guess, while cities like London and Tokyo get plenty of looks in, I'd say New York is the megacity most often portrayed in science fiction. It is, after all, more than London, Tokyo, Paris, or any other city today, the center of world global economic power. Whether in William Gibson's Neuromancer and the Sprawl trilogy, or Robert Fleischer's film Soylent Green, or the world of Judge Dredd created by John Wagner and Carlos Esguerra, it's New York, and often the entire eastern seaboard of the U.S., that epitomizes the megacity. These science fiction visions like Gibson's Sprawl or Megacity One in Judge Dredd are literary extrapolations of the heavily urbanized northeast seaboard of the U.S., which stretches from Boston to Washington, D.C., and which French geographer Jean Gottman expressively called Megalopolis in his highly influential 1961 book, Megalopolis, the urbanized northeastern seaboard of the United States. A timely example of this is Megacity 1 from 2000 AD's Judge Dredd comics, which famously flopped as a movie starring Silver Stallone, but whose most recent silver screen incarnation looks like it's going to rock. In an online article titled Travels in Toontown, Rory Olcato, a senior reporter at the architecture magazine BD Online, explores the architecture of comics, of which Judge Dredd's Megacity 1 is one of the most iconic examples. Olcato writes... Imagine a place the size of a hundred Londons, one that spreads out across the entire eastern seaboard of America, and you'll capture the scale of the fictional city that has been master-planned by writer John Wagner and built by artists such as Carlos Esguerra, Mike McMahon, and Brian Boland over the past 30 years. 
Imagine a city where prisons are located on traffic islands at the center of a vast highway complex on which computer-controlled lorries hurtle by at 2,000 miles per hour, where there's only one building left where a smoker can light up, the Smokatorium, and where the Statue of Liberty is dwarfed by the Statue of Judgment. We can fight our desires Ooh, when we start making fun. 800 million people living in the ruin of the old world Only one thing fighting for order in the chaos The men and women of the Hall of Justice Pierce Trees is the manufacturing base for all the slow-mo in Mega City One. You know how often we get a judge up in Peace Trees? Well, you got one now. She has control of everything. Levels 1 to 200. This is Mama. Somewhere in this block are two judges. That's not good. I want him dead. We're gonna have to go through him. Rookie, you ready? Yeah. You look ready. Judgment time. Let's finish this. Mama is not the law. I'm the law. Negotiation's over. Sentence is death. I've spoken of Frederick Pohl's and C.M. Kornbluth's masterful satire of consumer capitalism, The Space Merchants, before. Based partially on Frederick Pohl's Madison Avenue experience, this madman of the future describes a dystopian world where corporations run the world and fight clandestine and less-than-clandestine wars against each other, keeping their own consumers loyal to their products through addictive additives, and where food is produced by the Chlorella Corporation by indentured slaves in debt servitude. It is also, like Harry Harrison's Make Room, Make Room, upon which the film Soylent Green was based, a world of overpopulation and drastic wealth disparity. In this scene, the protagonist, Mitch Courtenay, ventures into the stairwells of one of New York's gigantic corporate towers where the huddled masses sleep in the stairwells. I got to the Tauntaun Building's Night Dweller entrance at 2159. Behind me, the time lock slammed the door. There was an undersized pay elevator. I dropped in a quarter, punched 35 and read notices while it creaked upward. Night dwellers are responsible for their own policing. Management assumes no responsibility for thefts, assault, or rapes. Night dwellers will note that barriers are upped at 2210 nightly and arrange their own calls of nature accordingly. Rent is due and payable nightly in advance at the auto clerk. Management reserves the right to refuse rental to patrons of Starzelius products. Once again, that was from C.M. Kornbluth and Frederick Pohl's The Space Merchants. While I am a firm believer that modern cities are going to be one of the emerging solutions to mankind's environmental problems, after all, the residents of New York generate far less CO2 per capita than other Americans, for example, the megacities that appeal to me in science fiction the most are the dark, gritty, dystopic cities of cyberpunk. In this beautiful visualization from Neuromancer, 
William Gibson takes that vision of Earth from space I began with, and the burning white pools of light outlining the world cities, and maps it onto a visual display of data exchange, simultaneously outlining for us a map of the sprawl, and situating it both in the real world and the world of bits, which bears the name he gave it in this same book, Cyberspace. Home. Home was Bama, the sprawl, the Boston-Atlanta metropolitan axis. Program a map to display frequency of data exchange, every thousand megabytes a single pixel on a very large screen. Manhattan and Atlanta burn solid white. Then they start to pulse, the rate of traffic threatening to overload your simulation. Your map is about to go nova. Cool it down. Up your scale. Each pixel a million megabytes. At a hundred million megabytes per second, you begin to make out certain blocks in midtown Manhattan, outlines of hundred-year-old industrial parks ringing the old core of Atlanta. That's from William Gibson's Neuromancer. In another passage from Neuromancer, Gibson evokes the urban and industrial decay of the sprawl. The landscape of the northern sprawl woke confused memories of childhood for Case, dead grass tufting the cracks in a canted slab of freeway concrete. The train began to decelerate ten kilometers from the airport. Case watched the sun rise on the landscape of childhood, on broken slag and the rusting shells of refineries. This is a classic vision of the Rust Belt, the decaying remains of industrialization that make up parts of what was once America's factory belt, a dystopic vision of the decadent megacity in post-industrial decay. But of course, Neuromancer begins not in New York, but in Night City, the darkest underbelly of Gibson's future Tokyo. And the novel begins with this famous line. The sky above the port was the color of television tuned to a dead channel. A few pages later, this is how Gibson describes Night City. Night City was like a deranged experiment in social Darwinism, designed by a bored researcher who kept one thumb permanently on the fast-forward button. Stop hustling, and you sank without a trace, but moved too swiftly, and you'd break the fragile surface tension of the black market. Either way, you were gone. Though heart, or lungs, or kidneys might survive in the service of some stranger with new yen for the clinic's tanks. Of course, it is easy to see how Night City, as Gibson writes it, an area with no official name, Night City with Ninsei at its heart. By day, the bars down Ninsei were shuttered and featureless, the neon dead, the holograms inert, waiting under the poisoned silver sky. As being partly inspired by Ridley Scott's 1982 classic film Blade Runner, somewhat loosely based on Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. In the beautiful opening sequence of Blade Runner, a hovercar swoops in over the nightscape of Los Angeles circa 2019, a cityscape of night illuminated by the flames of refineries where pyramidal buildings, probably arcologies, rise into the night sky. Below is a world of neon glows and Chinese lanterns, a polyglot melting pot where city-speak is a mixture of Asian and European languages and where floating aerial billboards promise hope of a better life. A new life awaits you in the off-world colony. The chance to begin again in a golden land of opportunity and adventure. Of course, I can't talk about cyberpunk and megacities without mentioning Akira, 
the classic 1988 Japanese animation film set in Neo-Tokyo, a megacity which serves as a backdrop for dueling biker games with awesome high-tech cycles and where mutant espers with enormous and devastating psionic powers are awakening from dormancy. Tetsuo! Shut up! Get away from me! Medicine. What's the matter, Tetsuo? Does it hurt? Huh? I need medicine. From the laboratory. Doctor, can you hear? Yes, Colonel. Go on. How about the visuals? Not too clearly, I'm afraid. The drugs we were using to keep him under control are wearing off. He won't be able to control his rapidly increasing power. He's in a very unstable condition. You've got to go back to the laboratory for treatment. Your life is in danger. <laughs> you mean I should go back to that nursery and behave myself? Ah! You want to use chemicals to turn me into a humanoid like those other kids? Ah! Like megacities, arcologies are also a common feature in cyberpunk and appear in Gibson's Sprawl trilogy, not as the environmental utopian solution Solari proposed, but as ways for the wealthy and powerful to shut themselves off from the problems and pollution of megacities. In Gibson's Tokyo, they are corporate havens where techs live and work their lives out above the pollution, grime, darkness, and neon glow of Night City. As in this excerpt from Neuromancer. Tokyo Bay was a black expanse where gulls wheeled above drifting shoals of white styrofoam. Behind the port lay the city, factory domes dominated by the vast cubes of corporate arcologies. Many of you listeners out there may be familiar with arcologies from Will Wright's SimCity 2000, where they appeared in several forms, the launch arcologies being one of the goals of the game, a giant domed city that would launch into space, reminiscent of James Blish's classic Cities in Flight series. Other listeners may have seen the Discovery Channel's Extreme Engineering episode about the proposed Shimizu Megacity Pyramid, a giant pyramid which, if it were ever built, would rise 750 meters over Tokyo Bay and house 750,000 people. Tokyo, one of the world's most ancient cities. It could become home to the greatest engineering marvel of modern man, the Megacity Pyramid. Over 3,000 feet high, it's a radical new approach to urban life. A three-dimensional city with skyscrapers suspended from it like fruit on a tree, and people speeding between them through a vast matrix of hollow supports. One of the greatest engineering challenges in history, it would utterly transform Tokyo Bay, the first offshore city ever built. But should it be built? Perilously perched on the Pacific Rim, it would be exposed to nature's wrath at its most devastating, the terrifying tidal waves called tsunamis. What would it take? Are their materials strong enough? Technology advanced enough? Like most proposed arcologies, the Shimizu Pyramid would produce much or all of its own electricity, in this case from both photovoltaic cladding and biofuels from pond scum. Soleri himself even proposed an arcology built into a giant dam from which it would get its power. While arcologies frequently get mentioned or serve as backdrops for individual scenes in science fiction films or books, they sometimes play a starring role, such as in Larry Niven's and Jerry Pornell's 1982 Oath of Fealty, 
where Michael Anderson's 1976 film Logan's Run, adapted from William F. Nolan's and George Clayton Johnson's 1967 novel of the same name, where people live a seemingly idyllic life in a giant domed city where the outside world is little more than a myth, known as sanctuary. Logan 5, did you find sanctuary? Did you find sanctuary? We will begin surrogation. are engaged. Logan 5, you were assigned to find a place called Sanctuary. Report. There is no sanctuary. Unacceptable. The answer does not program. You were assigned to locate missing runners. State what you found. Like I said, although I'm a firm believer that cities are going to be part of the emerging solution to the world's environmental problems, I'm really drawn to the dystopian visions that science fiction has to give us of the city. But I'd like to end with some words of hope about the megacity and cities in general. A recent Scientific American article by authors Betancourt and West has this to say about cities. For centuries, people have painted cities as unnatural human conglomerations blighted by pathologies such as public health crises, aggression, and exorbitant costs of living. Why, then, do people throughout the world keep leaving the countryside for the town? Recent research that is forming a multidisciplinary science of cities is beginning to reveal the answer. Cities concentrate, accelerate, and diversify social and economic activity. The numbers show that urban dwellers produce more inventions and create more opportunities for economic growth. Often, large cities are also the greenest places on the planet because people living in denser habitats typically have smaller energy footprints, require less infrastructure, and consume less of the world's resources per capita. Compared with suburban or rural areas, cities do more with less. And the bigger cities get, the more efficient they become. That's from a 2011 Scientific American Special Edition. Indeed, as human habitats, cities are one of the most resilient and arguably sustainable forms known. In the introduction to the book, The Resilient City, How Modern Cities Recover from Disaster, the editors, Lawrence Vale and Thomas Campanella, argue that cities which have been truly destroyed, such as St. Pierre and Martinique, which was completely buried by a volcanic eruption, are the exception, not the rule. In contrast, they write, although cities have been destroyed throughout history, sacked, shaken, burned, bombed, flooded, starved, irradiated, and poisoned, they have, in almost every case, risen again like the mythic phoenix. Words of hope to bear in mind. As I record this, Hurricane Sandy, the so-called Frankenstorm, is bearing down on the northeastern coast of America and the megacity of New York. By the time you listen to this, we'll know what's happened. I can say this, though, my heart goes out to those that are in its path. I debated including this because I didn't want to make light of a very serious situation. But I will leave you with this excerpt from the trailer of SimCity 2013. In this moving picture, we'll examine how to deal with disasters. In SimCity, natural disasters happen randomly. 
thereby reducing carefully crafted cities to rubble and wreckage. Take, for example, a city created by Chelsea McCrill of Little Rock, Arkansas. Clearly, Chelsea has put all of her development into industry, thus neglecting civic values such as police, hospitals, and fire stations. As we can see here... This was an ill-advised decision. So much for the March of Industry. Next! This has been another episode of Life, the Universe, and Everything. Reflections on science, science fiction, and philosophy. I'm Morgan Saletta, signing out. Back to you, Tony. There you go, Morgan. What, what can I say? And a big thank you to kind of turning up for the the Joe Haldeman lecture as well. And it was four o'clock in the morning. That's dedication. That's science fiction dedication. Four o'clock in the morning. And when Morgan asked Joe's question, you know what I mean? He's like, Joe, hi, it's Morgan. It was all so quiet. <laughs> Waking the house up. Morgan, you're a bloody star. Thank you so much. Next up is the main fiction, and it is by Nina Kariki Hoffman. Nina Kariki Hoffman's first solo novel, The Thread That Binds the Bones, came out in 1993 and won the Bram Stoker Award for first novel. Her second novel, The Silent Strength of Stones, which was 1995, was a finalist for the Nebula and the World Fantasy Award. Red Heart of Memories, 1999, part of the Matt Black series, nominated for a World Fantasy Award, was followed by a sequel, Past the Size of Dreaming, in 2001. Much of her work to date is short fiction. Actually, you, you get a look on the Internet Science Fiction database, and Nina has just tons of stories there. So, you know, we are, I'm sure, certainly be trying to sneak a few more off, I think, as well. And actually, Larry's played some of Nina's work over there as well. On Tales to Terrify. The story was first published in Clark's World magazine June 2010. Then it was podcast by Clark's World the same, the same month. And it came in the year's best science fiction 16. Edited by Catherine Kramer and David G. Hartwell. This story is narrated, need I say any more, by Jeff Lane. As you say, Jeff Lane audiobooks. Jeff's been on this show Dozens of dozens of times. I'll put a link on the Jeff's site as well to go over there and say hello. So the Starship Sova is very proud to present. Futures in the Memories Market by Nina Kariki Hoffman. You can't do anything else when you amp one of Gita Tilrasen's memory modules. Her senses seize you. You see through her eyes, taste with her tongue, hear with her ears, and touch... You've never felt air against your skin until you felt it breathe across hers. In a desert environment, there's a sense of cinnamon in the air. When Gita's on a water world, you feel the humidity as embrace instead of torture, as though you're constantly being kissed. Every module Gita makes is fresh and innocent, and every time you use one, you feel as though it's the first time. I've got one legitimate copy of a Gita Memod, I'm only allowed one at a time, and I've kept this one for a while. It's her visit to the Hallen people. Nothing very exciting happens. She walks into their village. The red sand gets into your sandals, but instead of grinding against your feet or raising blisters, it's a pleasant friction. The air smells of wood smoke, charred flesh, and sage. Hallen burrows are mostly underground. 
but they have built delicate above-ground structures with woven withies, beautiful as spiderwebs, with small crystals at the intersections that flare in the red sunlight. The Helen greet Gita, draw her into one of their withy shelters, and give her the only thing it's safe for her to ingest from their cuisine, some kind of berry drink with bits of leaf in it. She drinks. The liquid is cool on your tongue, a nice contrast to the desert heat. You taste the essence of that drink a long time after she's swallowed the last sip, a sour-sweet merging of bright and dark flavors. She presses palms with the head lizard, smells his individual scent that shares species straw tones with the others in the shelter, but smells a shade more like sulfur and ginger. She listens to their drum-intensive music and sits in a woven leaf chair with a Helen egg in her lap. The music gets inside you like a second heartbeat, chasing your blood until you want to rise and dance. You can feel how warm the egg is, how there's something moving inside that leather shell. You sense Gita's delight, the way it feathers her insides. It only lasts about a minute real time, maybe twenty minutes mod time. It's my favorite possession. I save it for the most difficult days, when I hate being Itzal Bedarte, the man who lost his home as a child and never found another. I long for roots, and all I do is wander. If I had Gita's power, perhaps my memories of my homeland would be stronger. They are fragments, mostly visual, a plane of light on my mother's cheek as she leans to kiss me, my father settling in a deep chair beside the hearth and lighting his pipe with a coal on a wire he's fished from the fire. I acquired a memod made by a cousin of mine, dead now. When I play it, I see again the stream beside our village, smoke rising from the chimneys of the white-plastered, red-shuttered houses on a cool morning, pots of red geraniums beside the doors, and even, I think, I catch a glimpse of my father leading a donkey down to drink. My dead cousin's memory is too flat, too simple. There are only muted sounds, distant scents, no touch. I don't feel as though I'm there. It is more like seeing something in a smoked mirror. I've emptied Gita's memory module of the Hallen about twenty times. I notice different things each time. She is so alert to every sensation that a normal person can't take in all at once. What I don't see in the Memod are Gita's bodyguards. Great times, the memory merchants who have the sole license to distribute Gita's mods, edits us out. Even though I've gone on memory missions with Gita, you will never sense me in one of her mods. As the ship approached our next destination, I pressed the alert beside Gita's cabin door. The door slid up and let me in. Gita stood in the middle of the cabin, with colored outfits draped over the omni-shapes of furniture whose function she hadn't set. The sensor laid down a faint, unobtrusive smell that covered any other odors in the cabin, and the audio was playing very low, something melodic without any percussion. Aside from the colors, this was Gita Neutral, as close as she could get to shutting down her senses and living on a par with the rest of us. It's all, Gita said. You know more about this than I do. What should I wear on Tice? She had been to Tice before, but she didn't remember. 
I looked over all her outfits and pointed to the scarlet one with the gilt, point-edged hem. We're going to a big city on Tice. Lots of energy and interaction. That dress will attract attention and uh, intensify your experience. She looked at me sideways, her broad mouth quirked at one corner. She was not beautiful in any of the regular ways, but her face was full of character, elastic enough to reflect her moods and thoughts. Only lately had I learned that she might be a different person behind her face, that there were parts of herself she'd been hiding. What if I want to have a quiet time? Do you? I asked. She spun around, stopped, hugged herself. You know me better than I know myself. She took the red dress and hung it from a ceiling ring. I helped her pick up the other clothes and store them behind the wall. She controlled the furniture into two chairs and a table, and we sat, facing each other. She tapped her wrist. I lifted my own wrist and swept the room with the spy stopper. No glow. Gita's corporate masters weren't watching us. Did you get me one? She asked. I shook my head. Sentients all through the interlinked worlds could buy Gita's memods, but access to them was strictly limited aboard the Collector. Each crew member could own one at a time, and Gita was not allowed to use any of them. She didn't have an implanted EMP receptor like the rest of us. She had to use an external one to get the cultural gloss and language of the places we visited before we arrived. Her corporate masters allowed her some forms of entertainment so she would be stimulated during our tween-world journeys through the skip nodes and in and out of systems. Nobody wanted Gita to get bored. Maybe I can pick up something on Tice, I said. I'm not sure how to get it aboard, though. Could you disguise it as something else? She asked. I thought about that. Maybe. If I have enough money... I need to find an underground tech who could make it look like one of your normal entertainment imps, so you could put it into the emperor without them knowing what you're doing. I tapped my lips with my index finger. Before I landed this job as Gita's bodyguard, I had done some less-than-legal things. Most of my guard training had come from people operating at the fringes of the linked worlds, in shadowy spaces often called underground. I knew a few signs of the Starlight Fraternity that might lead me to someone on Tice who could successfully disguise an imp. Or the signs might have expired, and using them could get me into trouble. I shook my head. I don't think I can pay enough. I'll give you money. But Geet, you don't have any. Gita made the best memods in the business, according to her fans, who were legion across many worlds. Great Times bought her contract when she was very young, recognizing her memory potential even then. They had automated observers on most worlds watching for talented children like Gita. Gita was kept in luxury, given everything she needed and wanted, so long as it wouldn't interfere with her memories. But she had no salary, and no real freedom. I'll trade something. She looked around her cabin, went to the wall and opened a drawer full of jewelry. She had a robber bird's delight in sparkling things, so she often asked for and received jewel gifts when she had completed a memory job. She got out the cutic rubies, a necklace with raw chunks of pink stone. 
It was one of her most expensive pieces. I felt a prickle of excitement. We usually visited backwater planets because people who bought Memod seldom went there, and they were hungry for Gita's fresh experiences. Tice was bigger than our usual stop. I might successfully fence jewels like these. They'd have a wider choice for Memods for sale there, too. Which memory do you want most? I asked, tucking the jewels in an inner pocket. The horse people, she said. Though she wasn't allowed to amp her own Memods, she could check the info stream and see the Great Times catalog, read the blurbs. I'll see what I can do. Gita had a second guard, Ibo. We alternated shifts when we were in relatively safe environments. I had some leave due, and Tice had some quiet places Gita was scheduled to visit. Thanks, Eatsall. She pressed her cheek to the back of my hand. I wondered what that was like for her. Did she like my smell, the feel of my skin? These were small, random memories no one would ever buy. Great times let Gita keep all her memories between missions, the dull details of shipboard life. It was only the planet visits they siphoned off, leaving her with amnesia of all her adventures, unknowing of any lessons she might have learned. They kept her in a state of confused innocence. She wanted to change that. She wanted me to help her recover the memories she had lost. Ibo and I flanked Gita as she stepped out of the shuttle, through the docking tunnel, and into Tice's Welcome Outworld Travelers Terminal. She looked everywhere, smiling wide. Hanging baskets of local plants with long, colored fronds filtered the light coming through the hazed sky ceiling, scattering spots of green and lavender on the floor. People, attended by companion animals, moved through the distance, intent on their own business. A mother with triplet daughters dangled a star on a string in front of her babies. They laughed and reached for it, and Gita laughed too. I hungered for her response to this situation, even as I surveyed the area for potential threats. Like Gita and Ibo, I'd emptied the culture and language memod for Tice last night. I still wasn't sure about the companion animals. They'd be easy to mimic. Some looked like large dogs, some like pack animals, and some walked upright like the humans they accompanied and looked like nothing I'd seen before. What if one of them was the kind of fan who wanted Gita to experience death or pain so they could share her intense response to that. She'd encountered threats before. Because of the nature of her memories, most people had no idea what Gita looked like. She rarely looked at herself in mirrors. If her reflection happened to show up in a memory, Great Times fuzzed it. She had been captured in some tourist vids Great Times could do nothing about, though. A tricky outsider might have some idea of what she looked like. Plus, there was always the general threat anyone might fall under in any place. Ibo took the lead. We went through the customs scan. They determined that Ibo and I were licensed to carry the stun weapons we had. We had no luggage. Gita never stayed anywhere overnight. It only took her a few hours to collect several saleable memory sets. She had already started. She had a long conversation with the customs official about what kind of people he met what their stories were, what people tried to smuggle in. Ibo and I stood patiently while the customs official called over his supervisor and had her tell more stories. 
all part of Gita. I had the rubies in a shielded belt. I wasn't sure the belt would fool the sophisticated scanners on Tice, or even the ship scanners, though I hoped the stones would show up as just rocks and metal. Imps triggered the ship's scanner. It was looking for them. Then again, rubies weren't illegal or dangerous. I didn't want Captain Ark to know about them, though, or Ibo. We left the terminal through close-pressed crowds of various kinds of people and animals. Gita smiled at them, and they found themselves smiling back, maybe without thinking about it. The usual ripple of pleasant spread around us as we moved. Even the pickpocket, whose hand I caught in Gita's purse, smiled after I retrieved Gita's pay ID, because Gita said, Better luck next time! (laughs) With a short warble of laughter, and kissed his cheek before I released him back into the wild. On the curb of Hollow Street, Gita engaged a cab. She sat in the back, sandwiched between me and Ibo, and told the driver we wanted to go to the Queen's Sculpture Garden, the first of four planned stops here. Last time Gita came to Tice, she started with the amusement park. I wasn't with her then, but I've heard from people who have emped that module. They love it. Even when she threw up on the big roller ride, I was surprised that wasn't edited out. The sculpture garden was quiet when we got there, apparently not a big attraction early on a work day. Only some of the sculptures were made by humans, others had been left behind by vanished alien civilizations, or some made by the three alien species we regularly traded with. All were meant to be touched. Gita was in her element, studying the sculptures with eyes, ears, nose, fingers, palms, finally full-bodied embraces. She climbed into the lap of a great mother and curled up there, hugging herself, her cheek against the smooth, dark stone. The bliss on her face made me wonder if she were thinking about her own mother's lap or some other place she had been perfectly comfortable. Her emotions loaded with the memod, but you couldn't read her thoughts, though sometimes I felt like I could. Ibo and I had been standing at an easily editable distance, watching Gita make memories for half an hour, when she looked around and said, Ibo, we're safe here, aren't we? Ibo and I both surveyed the garden using our detection gear to see if anyone or anything dangerous was nearby. No threats. It's okay for Itzal to take half an hour of his leave now, Gita said. I'll be here at least that much longer. What have you two cooked up? Ibo asked. You took leave on Galloway, I said. We had been walking a tour trail through a spectacular lava field when Ibo begged time off. He'd come back smelling of sex shop perfume when we were in the sweet shop at the end of the tour. True, he said. He frowned as though he realized it was a mistake to accuse me and Gita of anything during a memod. The Great Times people edited us out, but for sure they listened to our conversations before they eliminated them. All right. See you later, Itzel, he said, and I left. We are not supposed to know how to hack our trackers, but my last job before joining the Gita team was with a research and development security company and I learned a lot there. I entered false coordinates in my tracker and headed for Pawn Alley. Twenty-nine minutes later, I was back in the sculpture garden with news I kept to myself. 
The rest of our tour on Tice went without trouble, and Gita, Ibo, and I taxied back to the terminal, our arms full of souvenirs, boxes of Tice tea cakes in five flavors, soft and textured stuffed animals, three new dresses for Gita, with hats, shoes, over tunics, and jewelry to match, and an info stream address for the man Gita had met and kissed at the races. Having walked through the day with Gita and watched her different delights, including that kiss, I wanted the whole suite of today's memods. Maybe I'd get them, one at a time, though there were so many Gita memods on my wish list already. Gita had a party with the ship's crew, sharing the treats she'd brought back and talking about her day. We were all charmed, as we always were the night before the company extracted her memories. We got to see who Gita might be, if she could have held on to her experiences. We all loved the woman she would never become. Later, the cakes gone and souvenirs distributed amongst the crew, to be hidden any time Gita came near, though she always got to keep any clothes and accessories she bought. I escorted Gita back to her cabin. She went into the changing alcove, where I spy-stopped. I found a new active camera and managed to remotely access its feed while my back was to it. Gita fluttered back into the cabin in her exercise clothes, talked about her adventures, then started her nightly routine. Three repetitions in, I created a loop and sent the camera into non-time. As soon as I gave Gita the all-clear, she rushed to me. She saw my expression and sighed, two steps before she would have collided with me. They were fake, I said. The rubies? I went to three pawn shops, and they all told me the same thing. Decent fakes, not spectacular. Worth no more than glass. Didn't get enough to even contact anyone who might have disguised the real memods. I traded what I got for the rubies for a couple disguised bootlegs, the lava walk on placeholder and the plunge valley on paradise. I need to test them. Maybe they won't be infected. I had tried a couple of bootlegs of Gita's memods without testing them back when I was younger and stupider. They were dirt cheap, but still amazing, though they suffered from copy fatigue. Often the bootleggers placed compulsions in them that took money, time, and effort to eradicate. I still had the urge to gamble every time I passed an ergo machine. Fake, Gita repeated. She wandered to her jewelry drawer, stared down at her treasures, and shut the drawer, her shoulders drooping. Then angry, she stepped back into place and resumed her exercises. I unlooped the spy camera, and we went through her night-of-a-collection-day routine, which included a shower for Gita and a furniture keying for me. I had to shape the bed so it would do the extraction during the night. Washed free of every trace of Tice, Gita let me help her into the bed, fasten the restraints, and plug in her head. Kiss me, she said. I want two kisses in a day. I never had that experience before, did I? I kissed her long and deep, kissing the woman we were killing. This kiss wouldn't make it into the memods. Her return to the ship was always cut out. We had done the Tice ending shot at sunset on a mountain, where cool wind touched us with feathered fingers. It would be spliced onto the end of each of Gita's Tice memods. Gita would not remember the kiss, but I would, 
the taste of her sorrow and desperation, mixed with the last sweet tang of willow cake. She often kissed me, last thing after a mission. I had a collection of these moments in my memory, moments that sometimes deceived me into thinking we were closer than we were. Her lips relaxed, and I straightened out of the kiss, looked down into her tear-wet eyes. Good night, Gita, I said softly. Good night, Itzal. She closed her eyes. I set the bed on collect and touched off the lights as I left the room. In my own much smaller and sparer cabin, I checked for spies. I had never found one. What I did away from Gita didn't concern the Great Times people, as long as it was legal and not going to impair my care for her. I put the Hallen Memod in the recycle slot and took out the Memod I had bought with the ruby money, what I hadn't put away. I had bought the horse people, the one she asked me for. It was a Memod she'd made before I was part of her staff. I had read the sales copy on all of them, wanting to know who she had been as much as she did. This was one of the better ones. All the reviews said so. I set my new Memod in my receptor and settled down to Emp. Gita walked down a ramp into a sky seething with dawn clouds and the tracks of skitterbirds. The air smelled of damp and green, and morning animals called a random concert with notes that sometimes clashed and sometimes harmonized. In Gita's mind, it was all beautiful. The air was cool. Gita felt it as a pleasurable hug from a chilly friend. Three horses galloped up the soft-surfaced road and stopped just in front of her, breathing grass-scented breath, musky warmth pouring off them. She laughed and went to hug one, even though the culture Memod said people weren't allowed to do that. How amazing to have your arms around so much huge, intelligent warmth. The texture of the damp hair against your cheek, the solid muscles shifting against your chest. The smell of the horse's sweet, salty musk stirred Gita awake on several levels. Miss, said the horse. Miss, I don't know you. She released him and stepped back. Oh, I'm sorry. Please forgive me. You don't know me yet, but I hope you will. He watched her with one large dark eye, as intricate and beautiful a glistening eye I had ever seen, with a depth in it that might lead to mystery. I fell in love with the horse. I knew Gita smiled up at him because... I saw his response, charmed, his head nodding a little, even as his companions laughed at him. I settled deeper into being Gita, finding a home that wasn't really mine, but felt like mine. Gita was home everywhere she went, and when I was emping her, I felt that way too. I didn't know if I would ever share this with her. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Nina's. And did I say at the very beginning, did I get that title mixed up? I'm just trying to think there. Did, I'm sure I said Memories in the Future Market. <laughs> Been a long day. day. Well, anyway, next up is a little promo by our very own Amy H. Sturgis. And Amy will be getting over a, one of those looking back on genre histories. 
soon as well. But she wanted to tell everyone about her new lectures that she's teaching for the spring. So, Aim. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Amy H. Sturgis from the Looking Back in Genre History segment. And it's that time again. That's right. It is time for registration for spring classes. And I wanted to let you know that I'll be teaching the second half of my science fiction course. That is Science Fiction Part 2 from the New Wave to Tomorrow for the Mythgard Institute at Signum University. That's an all-online 12 weeks of 24 90-minute lectures, which you can attend live or you can download at your leisure. This semester, in the fall of 2012, we've had participants from five different continents, and it has been amazing. And I'm really hoping some of you will join me for Science Fiction Part 2, which will begin in January 2013. Registration is now open whether you're a degree-seeking student or you just like to sit in on the class for the love of it. At Mythgard Institute, mythgard.org. In this class, I'll be discussing topics like the new wave, literary science fiction, the rise of cyberpunk, steampunk, space opera, hard science, first contacts, transformations and reimaginings, young adult science fiction, and the future of the genre. And we'll be discussing works by authors such as Harlan Ellison, Philip K. Dick, Samuel R. Delaney, Ursula K. Le Guin, Joanna Russ, James Tiptree Jr., Octavia Butler, William Gibson, Orson Scott Card, Lois McMaster Bujold, Connie Willis, Kim Stanley Robinson, William Sanders, Mary Doria Russell, Neil Gaiman, Bernard Beckett, Ted Chang, Will McIntosh, and others. I do hope you'll join me. And I should also mention that at the end of November 2012, the 24 90-minute lectures from my Science Fiction Part 1 from Modern Beginnings Through the Golden Age will be available for purchase as an audio or video download if you'd like to catch up on the class that's already been. Again, I would like to invite you to join a worldwide, truly global conversation as we embark on an exciting adventure together through the second half of contemporary science fiction. I'm really excited about the class, and I hope to see some of you there. Check out the Mythgard Institute at mythgard.org, and you can contact me through my website at amyhsturgis.com. Thanks so much. There you go. I'll put a link on which will take you directly to where you can sign up for these these lectures of Amy's as well. And like I say, if you've been to one of Amy's lectures, man, it's, you know, like on Starship Sova. Which is, did you know they were half price? <laughs> it's cheap and chatty, but hey, come on, man. Give the lad a break. But honestly, if you've been to one of these, you just know how knowledgeable Amy is. Do you know what I mean? When we started doing Starship Sova and... You know, me and Kieran kind of dug in deep, and then Amy, you know, was listening to our work, and you know, we kind of knew Amy was good. Man, just Amy is just so knowledgeable on the kind of the, the art and the craft and everything of science fiction. Come along to one of her lectures, you know what I mean? It's just fantastic. You can you can try them in our Black Friday. 
That's enough. That's enough, Tony. Come on, man. Right, that's it then. That's enough of Starship Sober this week. I hope you enjoyed it. Please do think about Black Hole Friday. It'll certainly help, you know, put some coffers in Starship Sova's war chest, as it happens, as it will be. So until next week, I'd just like to say good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honour and artistic judgement? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.